0: My son Dustin lost everything his car furniture clothes food dishes musical instruments drum set and his two beloved cats.
1: there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Each week, a storyteller will join us here on the podcast to tell one of their stories, then break it down with me, Sean. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these storytellers and their stories And also to help you craft and tell better more engaging more relatable and more memorable stories true stories personal stories grit stories on this bonus episode we're changing things up a little bit we have got three stories from one of our recent open mics the mental health happyish hour we've got stories by sasha in washington linda in west virginia and barbara in illinois so thank you ladies so much for that we are in the middle of season number two and it is dedicated entirely to women, so this works out really well. Before we dive in, help us out if you would. If you listen on Apple, rate, review, and even subscribe to this podcast. It really helps people find it. As always, you can check the show notes for upcoming events, workshops, and other information. Okay, without further ado, let's dive in. I named
2: my cat Coco after Coco Chanel because I wanted her to be a strong female. Well, Coco was strong all right. She scratched me so much that one time, a woman looked at my battered legs and asked me if I was into S and M. Coco was very demanding when she wanted something. Anytime she saw me cut open a cantaloupe, she'd go, meow, meow, meow. She was like a fire alarm. I'd have to chop up the cantaloupe into tiny, one-millimeter slices and offer her a handful. Then another handful, until she was satisfied. Otherwise, Coco didn't seem to care too much about food. Every morning, when I fed her a bowl of her kitty mix, she'd sniff it, take a few bites, then she'd stop and walk away. Usually, she left her bowl half full. This amazed me. My cat had healthier eating habits than I did. I'd been binging and purging ever since I was a teenager. My condition was so bad that I couldn't trust myself with food nearby. If a coworker brought in a box of donuts or a jar of M&Ms, I wouldn't be able to concentrate. At home, if there was a carton of ice cream in the fridge, I'd take a spoon and eat the entire thing while watching an episode of The Office. Then I'd go into the bathroom, pull my hair back, shove two fingers down my throat. Ice cream is pretty easy to throw up, especially if it's a smooth flavor like vanilla or caramel. Not so much if it's butter pecan or chocolate almond. The sharp edges of the nuts can hurt your throat. I was really good at hiding my habit. I'd polish the toilet until it shined. I'd go to the supermarket and buy a new carton of ice cream. Sometimes I'd crack open the new carton and eat just two or three spoonfuls to make it appear as if I'd had a sensible snack. I kept this nasty secret from my parents, my brother, and all the people I'd ever lived with. But one time, when my head was over the toilet, Koko pushed open the bathroom door. She looked at me with her big cat eyes. I felt really dirty because I knew that she knew. And I knew I had to do something. I was a fraud. On the outside, I looked healthy, but inside, I imagined my organs were ravaged. I read a self-help book that suggested I look into a mirror and declare I love myself. I tried it and thought, ugh, that's awkward and corny. I saw a therapist. She told me that bulimia was about control. It was my way of asserting control when things around me felt out of control. This made me remember when all this started. I was a kid, and I'd watched my brother fall into a deep depression, and I couldn't do anything about it. I asked my mother for help, and she couldn't do anything about it. So that theory about control and lack of control made sense, but knowing that didn't really make me change. Especially in 2020, when it seemed like the world was ending. My depressed, unemployed brother was now manic and running around like a COVID magnet. I was worried about him more than ever because people who look like us were being blamed for the coronavirus. But when I called him, he said he preferred texting and that I shouldn't expect a response right away because he had important things to do. I kept thinking how good it would feel if I could just eat a bag of three Musketeers and a tub of coffee ice cream. But I couldn't because I was working from home. My fiance was working from home. We were always together. My secret would have been out. I logged into an Eating Disorders Anonymous group I learned that at least 30 million Americans were suffering from anorexia or bulimia. I saw a man talk about how he chewed and chewed his food and then spit it into his napkin. When it was my turn to speak, I talked about my cat. By this time, Coco had died, but I was still inspired by her healthy approach to food. The moderator stopped me and said I was getting off topic. I grew frustrated. I went outside and did some yoga stretches. I recited, I love myself, I love myself. Saying this was easier when I didn't have to look into a mirror. I love myself, I love myself. Something in my mind clicked. I thought about Coco and how excited she got anytime she saw a cantaloupe. I imagined making a mountain of tiny cantaloupe slices and then stuffing it down her throat, making her vomit ugh, that's disgusting. Why was I doing that? If I truly loved myself like I had loved my cat, I wouldn't subject myself to this torture. I guess I'd been into S&M all along. It didn't involve whips and chains, just ice cream and pie. A few weeks later, I started my own online group. I called it Table Tales, and every week, Several people who had nothing better to do during the pandemic zoomed in to talk about food. I asked them, what was the most memorable meal that you've had? What did it look like? What did it smell like? Where were you? Then I helped people write their stories and publish them on a website. An accountant wrote about a fish that he caught as a young boy, and his mother cooked it until it was GBD, golden, brown, and delicious. A yoga teacher wrote about a chicken curry that a guy made for her, and that's when she realized she could love him. Through these stories, we celebrated food because it wasn't just about nourishment. It was about people, sharing, joy, the complete opposite of what I'd been doing alone, in secret. Around the same time, I taught my brother how to Zoom. I saw that he had lost another tooth, that he was wearing two sweaters to keep himself warm. I realized yet again that my mental health was tied to his mental health. I couldn't do much to help him, but I did what I could. I listened. Next week, we Zoomed again, and I was so happy to see that he had logged in a few minutes early. Eventually, all those strong urges that I had of wanting to eat a big chocolate cake, a carton of ice cream, all of that, became quiet. Now, if I see a box of donuts, maybe I'll eat one, maybe two, but then I'll stop. I'll go on to do something else, just like Coco.
1: Thank you, Sasha, for telling that story. I first met Sasha this past Sunday at our open mic. I'm glad she joined us to tell that story. And next up is Linda in West Virginia. His house is in
0: Asheville, North Carolina, and it burned to the ground. It was just a charred black cinder. My son, Dustin, lost everything. His car, furniture, clothes, food, dishes, musical instruments, drum set, and his two beloved cats. An ambulance whisked him away and he went to the burn center in Wake Forest. They told him on the way he might die before they even got that two-hour trip and got him in the hospital. He had inhaled so much toxic smoke that the inside of his lungs were black. I got a message the next day that all this was going on. He wasn't in any condition to call me, and so uh, I'm the one that got a message. Yeah, I'm his mother. I called his charge nurse, she gave me the full details, all the meds he was taking, what his plan of care was, his prognosis, which didn't really sound good. And he was there for many, many, many days. Eventually he started doing better, little bit by little bit every day. And then I got a message from his nurse that they would release him, but only if there was somebody that was gonna take care of him, somebody that was gonna see that he had food, somebody that had a clean environment, almost antiseptic, somebody that was going to assist him with everything, transportation back and forth to the burn center or a nearby doctor, I'm the mom, I said, I'm gonna do this. I love my son, I'm doing it. So the doctors and nurses told us that he faced numerous dire issues. There was a lot of trauma and it was gonna be really, really difficult. Wasn't gonna be easy. Number one, infections. And that's the, the worst thing they said people that have such extensive burns on their body, and one third of his body had third degree burns, they faced the wrath of deep, painful infections. Weight loss. They said that his body was going to take every bit of nutrients to try to rebuild skin and heal everything that he had lost. And then they said if he made it through all of that, He probably would have to have skin grafts because he didn't have any skin left on the top of his head. So he was swathed up in gauze and wrappings, silver infused rubber mats draped on him. I'd never heard of this before, but it is something that they do to treat burn patients. He was dripping with anti-infection ointments. I mean, he just looked greasy. It was just all over him. I gathered him, his medical supplies in North Carolina, and I drove him eight hours to my West Virginia house. I was gonna be his caretaker, his nurse, his purse, his mother, his cook. I was gonna do everything I could to help him heal, surround him with love. Most of the ride back, he was sedated and he was curled up with pillows, cuddling him in the back seat. Just before we left Asheville, the local ASPCA had collected his kitty's remains and we were supposed to go by and pick them up. They had them in a carton and they'd been in the freezer. I stopped, I ran in the building. They handed me a frozen box with their little bodies. I didn't open it, I didn't want to see them. We stopped for gas on the way back, several times actually, when I slammed the door shut He jumped up. He was startled and he screamed. He was having a nightmare. He thought he was back in the house and the ceiling was crashing in on him. And that's the way it was to be for the next two months. Every little sound, every smell, just me turning on the gas stove would send him into a rage, crying, screaming. I had a comfy futon set up in the spare bedroom. And I thought this would be something low to the ground. He could easily roll in and out. He was near the bathroom. But Dustin said it was too hard and it made his burns feel like they were just ripping and searing and he couldn't sleep on it. He decided the most comfortable place was a foam mattress that we rolled out on the living room floor. He didn't want sheets. He didn't want blankets. He didn't want anything touching him. And he lay there day after day, screaming and crying. My German shepherd, who's usually my best friend and my constant companion, abandoned me. She laid down beside him. She wouldn't take her eyes off of him. If his breathing slowed down too much, she shoved her big wet nose on the only spot on his body that was uncovered and didn't have a burn. And that was under his chin, right there on his neck. We put the box of kitties in my freezers. After a few days, he felt stronger. He wanted to take them out. He wanted to take them to the family farm. He wanted to bury them and have a proper funeral. I thought that would be a good thing, maybe help him heal. So I left him alone on the back porch so he could open the box and cry and grieve, and then we could go to the farm. Instead, he screamed. God, awful, bloody, I thought somebody was murdering him. The animal control officer at the center in Asheville had put a headless cat in that box, not his two beloved kitties. So after many phone calls, it turns out this was a cat that they had tested for rabies, and they'd mixed up the cat carcasses. Oh, I was one really pissed off mama bear, I took out all of our anger, our frustration, everything on that center, director. I'm sorry, I did, poor lady. My son had gone through enough, but more was on the way. Nights and months of screaming, crying, torture. Burns are the most painful thing a human can endure ever. The wounds had to be scraped, disinfected, scrubbed. Then rewrapped twice a day, twice a day. There were parts of his body he couldn't reach, and I had to do it. I had to help him. That was probably the worst thing I've ever gone through, watching my son suffer, and there wasn't anything I could do. I cried every night when I went to bed when he couldn't see me. Oh, I didn't want to burden him. With my emotional pain, he was dealing with enough. But any food he wanted, anything and everything, I could remember he loved when he was a little boy. He was going to get it. I cooked it. Lasagna, he had lasagna every other day. Meatloaf, spicy like he liked it. He got that. Homemade bread, yep. Blueberry cheesecake, everything my son wanted. My kitchen was a nonstop restaurant. The food just rolling in and out and churning. Whatever delicacy I could conjure up, he was going to get it. Several months go by. On the second trip back to the burn center, we pulled in the parking deck. He asked me to let him go in by himself. I said, "Okay." I mean, he's a grown-ass man. He needed to start doing some things on his own. That was hard. I had to swallow real hard. And say, okay, I'm going to sit here. I'll wait. So I watched him shuffle across the asphalt. He looked like a mummy, dragging his wrappings like he just emerged from the tomb. Two hours later, he hobbled back. He slumped in the seat. Oh no, I thought, not good news. I thought he was doing so good. His appetite was great. He was using less pain meds. He didn't seem to have any infections. He sat down then he grinned like a Cheshire cat. My little charming boy was coming back. He had improved so much they released him. He didn't need skin grafts. His skin had grown back miraculously, it grown back. No infections, he was gonna have some scars. And thanks to mom's loving care and homegrown food, and piles of fattening desserts, he gained 30 pounds.
1: Thank you, Linda, for that story. Linda, who has taken one of our workshops and has been a regular in the grit bubble for several months. Next up, Barbara in Illinois.
3: My mother lies immobile in her nursing home bed, despite there being nothing wrong with her limbs or her nervous system. Because of vascular dementia, she's lost the ability to walk or move her arms as her brain does triage, prioritizing the dwindling blood flow and oxygen to the essentials like breathing, seeing, digesting. She's also exhausted from fighting dementia's inescapable gravity well, which pulls her mind further into darkness dragging this lively, edgy, fiercely loving woman we've known away from 78 years of coherence and lucidity into its chaotic black hole of hallucinations. At the beginning of her descent, she's able to share these dreamlike visions which she believes are completely true. In this twilight zone, she imagines her long dead father is still living and my uncle Dave, who is very much alive and has just visited her a week past, is dead. She sees bags of money lying at her feet in her hospital bed and she excitedly whispers, Barb, take the money, take it home and put it in my safe. I wish. On another visit, another early visit, she asks me, whose horse is that standing behind your chair? She also tells me she and the hotel's cook had a lovely conversation during their smoking break, though she's not in a hotel has never met the nursing home's cook, and she hasn't smoked in 10 years. At the beginning of her descent, I am in denial about how irrevocable the changes in her brain are and have yet to learn the pointlessness of correcting her delusions. I still believe by confronting them, it will at least keep her on dementia's event horizon and not become sucked down into into mental oblivion so quickly but the nursing staff gently convinces me that there is no road back to normalcy and I should spend as much time with her as possible. Now, mom's mind periodically rises up from confusion and bivouacs on a tenuous ledge of lucidity, usually right after a scary plunge down into several days of further physical and mental decline. But each time she rallies, the plateaus are lower than the one before and of shorter duration. And the next decline is deeper and longer than the one before it. But a year into her stay and about six months before her death, she spends most of her time in a near constant state of sleep, of unconsciousness. She's eating and drinking less as time passes, but there are some bright spots. There's a wonderful Polish immigrant nurse's aide named Casey who is able to coax my mother to eat more than the other aides with, oh, come on my darling, eat for me. Mom beams whenever Casey's cheery self enters her room, as she does when Lewis, a middle-aged African-American aide, dances and sings his way into her room. How's my beautiful Eileen doing today is how he always greets her. He takes great pride in the care he gives mom and the other residents. She is on hospice care and has been since a month after being admitted for her shower fall. The hospice volunteers and I communicate mostly through a notebook kept at her bedstand, where we write how mom is or isn't doing better or worse. They tell me it's comforting to those who are dying to have permission to go to die from their loved ones, that many linger because they're worried about the pain and trauma their passing is going to cause their loved ones. I decide to do this, but I'm hoping for another tiny rally where she will be somewhat lucid and communicative And about a month before her death, she finds her way back from another slide down the gravity well. I call my older brother Rick, tell him this rally may be her last and he flies in the next day from his home in LA to stay for a few days and to see his mother for a last time. Well, moms always love surprises so I keep his upcoming visit a secret. And when we enter the room, her reaction at seeing Rick is unexpected. She looks confused and a little horrified I think she's not sure whether he's real or a hallucination, maybe she's afraid he's dead. She has been talking lately, sometimes arguing with people only she can see over the last few months. To reassure her that Rick is really there, I say, look who's flown in to visit you, Ma, your gorgeous son. She looks relieved and smiles. And Rick has never been prosperous and mom often funds his trips to visit. So when she Riley asks, yeah, Who paid? Rick and I laugh feeling joyful because this, this cheeky woman is totally recognizable as our mother. And we all know it will be our last time we share a family in joke. A few days later after Rick has flown home, I'm trimming her nails and we're watching our afternoon show, Jeopardy. I sense now is the time to let her know that while we love her, she has our blessing if she's ready to leave. And suddenly I'm flooded with an irrational but instinctive fear of abandonment. Like a living matrioshka doll, the small vulnerable child pops out from inside me to rebel against this unnatural idea that it's okay to tell her mother she has her blessing to die, to leave her forever. This rush of vestigial childlike fear is unexpected and it takes me a moment to reorient myself into adulthood and find my way back into my adult skin. I look at mom not knowing exactly what I'm gonna say. And I know I must say the most difficult thing. Mom, I've got something to say and I, I, it is the most difficult thing I've ever had to say. So I'm only gonna say it once. She looks at me with complete and calm attention. It's like, I love you, Rick loves you, your sister loves you. But if you're ready to go, because I can't say the word die, it's okay. We'll miss you and love you forever, but we will be okay. She wears a quiet, peaceful look that tells me she understands. And we go back to casual conversation, watching Jeopardy. And two weeks later, a half hour before my usual morning visit, the nursing home calls to tell me mom has died. It's an unbearably beautiful, sunny July day that at first seems jarring and incongruent with her death and my grief. But then I think my mother's death released her bright spirit from the darkness of dementia. And it is this that is being reflected back to me in this gorgeous day. And i now like to imagine that she looked out her window at that shiny morning and freed from her earthly worries about my brother and me thought, this is a good day to die. And so she did.
1: As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to our Mental Health Happyish Hour open mic storytellers. Sasha in Washington, Linda in West Virginia, and Barbara in Illinois. Thank you, ladies, for telling those stories. As always, check the show notes for upcoming events and workshops. And if you listen on Apple, yes, help us out. Rate and review right now. It really helps people find this podcast. Thank you for that. That's all for episode number 41. Boom.